And the winners of the Master Card British Album of the Year are the boys from the Steel City, the Arctic Monkeys. Arctic Monkeys introduced themselves to the world with I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor in 2005. That same year, Gordon Sangera co-founded Oxford Nanopore Technologies. An image of the Arctic Monkeys and the lyrics to that song are on the wall of Oxford Nanopore's offices on the outskirts of Oxford. It's a homage to the disruption the band caused in the music industry. I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Gordon Sanguera, the co-founder and chief executive of Oxford Nanopore. We speak to him about how he built one of the most exciting companies operating in the UK today, but also how more companies could follow its lead and how Oxford Nanopore has been inspired by the Arctic Monkeys, former Nottingham Forest manager Brian Clough, and Renus Mickles, the Dutch football manager who created Total Football. So Oxenanapore is a company that reads genomes. All living systems have a source code, and that comprises four bases, G, T, A, C. And what we are developing is a new generation of DNA sequences. That is a, a platform that can allow you to read the source code of anything. So to put that in context, if you look at a virus such as COVID, it's about 15,000, 16,000 letters of GTAC. Something like E. coli, bacterial pathogens, come in at three to five million bases. And these are on a continuous letter string. So there's three to five million GTAC, TTAT, DC. Human, 3.2 billion. And in that 3.2 billion, all of us, absolutely all of us, vary less than 1%. And then you have plant genomes that can run into tens of billions, like the wheat genome. So today, when you look at sequencing, it's very much like computing in the 70s. It's a mainframe moment. What do I mean by that? There are large centralized facilities. The machines cost upwards of half a million, three quarters of a million dollars. And they're run by highly specialist biologists, molecular biologists to prep the DNA, to extract it from the material of interest, whether that be human, animal, plant, environmental, and then run these machines. And like mainframe computing, they're batch-based. So like a jumbo jet, you've got to fill it completely to make it cost-effective. And then many, many weeks, days and weeks later, results come out the other end of the pipe. And that requires infrastructure, supercomputer IT infrastructure, and armies of what they call bioinformaticians. Molecular biologists at the front end, preparing DNA, bioinformaticians, as mathematicians with biologics, understanding of genetics, decoding all of that. What we set out to do when we set Oxford Nanopore up 18 years ago was to create a new generation of DNA sequencing. You've spoken of a world where family members buy each other kits for Christmas. 
for birthdays, and it becomes widespread in every household. How how far away is that? That already happens in in a. I think there are multiple ways that sequencing will impact us. That particular example, you know, I'd like to trace my heritage. You know, I come from Punjabi farmers, but where did they come from? And you can kind of do that by talking to older relatives and go to the Punjab and talk to people who live there and glean some information. But being able to have a a consumer product where they you can look at your genealogy and you can trace it back. You know, I'd like to think all the way back to Genghis Khan in my case. I was joking. But, you know, that really adds a different and real flavour to the whole, you know. The whole way we will look at genetics and, you know, other direct-to-consumer examples will be lifestyle, pre, you know, tailored, tailored sports treat. You know, that already happens with elite athletes, but, you know, looking at your genetics and pairing the right sort of training for you if you're an elite athlete, but that will become more widespread. But more importantly right now, the immediate need is to ensure that as the next pandemic hits and the many, many multiple challenges we have in healthcare, whether that's cancer, diabetes, drug resistance in bacterial pathogens, antimicrobial resistance, the rise of the superbug, all of these, the ability to have a decentralized affordable, accessible platform for DNA information, which doesn't exist today. It's all in central labs with specialists. will bring about the same revolution that we saw with the information age and the computer. Mainframe, PC, handheld. There's more compute in your washing machine than there was to put a man on the moon. You'd never have thought that's what you'd be doing with computers. So as we access real-time DNA, RNA information, the use cases will be astronomical. And people will do things with DNA, RNA information that we can't even imagine today. Oxford Nanopore was founded in 2005 by Gordon Sangera, Professor Hagen Bailey and Spike Wilcox. It was a university spin-out based on the work of Professor Bailey at the University of Oxford. Sangera was in his early 40s at the time and had had a successful career in the biotechnology industry with Medisense and then Abbott Laboratories, the US company which bought Medisense. However, he wanted to start a new business and went looking for promising ideas at universities. Today, Oxford Nanopore is worth around £2 billion and is one of the most successful university spin-outs the UK has ever produced. I mean, I go and sit on various committees and steering groups still, and people talk about how great we are. And, you know, academically, we do punch way above our weight, but we don't seem to create, you know, tech giants like Facebook and Meta, as it's called today, and and Microsoft and all these others. And, you know, Medicine went a long way to debunk that, but then it still got acquired and there is no there is no reason other than the people who were doing it were american because the money came from america and if you do it over here there is apps and, and especially in oxford there's no reason we can't create tech players like you know stanford does or california i mean there's no reason at all other than somebody's just got to go out there and do it and 
And it wasn't just me, Clive, our CTO, who, you know, had done a lot to build the Selexa platform, which is the Illumina platform, had the same view. We just, we just, let's just do it and demonstrate you can, you know, the, the biotech industry in, in, you know, in Silicon Valley, people didn't sort of spend years strategically saying we're going to do this. Some, some smart biologists started making synthetic drugs. And Kleiner Perkins jumped on that. And away you go. And right now, particularly the last couple of years, this country, and Oxford in particular, has demonstrated we can be a life sciences superpower. You know, as Mourinho would say, my team is in the moment. We have vaccines. We have genomics. The genomics Arctic Midnight Group that was set up by Nick Lohman here in the University of Birmingham was sequencing across the globe. And, and what we've done with... Oxenanopause platforms in low and middle income countries, people are starting to sequence. Over 85 low and middle income countries were doing genomics for the first time ever because the, the platforms are affordable and accessible. And if you can run a PCR lab, you can do DNA sequencing. And that is game changing. And from the outset, we, we always said, the exit was world domination. And I'm not being flippant here, as in we're not trying to build this up and sell it to somebody. We think we can create a whole new class of measurement, which we've done, and we think we can create a company that can absolutely dominate access to DNA, RNA information, and that will be as big as the information age was and the dawn of the, com- the personal computer. There is a lot of debate in the UK at present about how to grow the economy over the long term. Also how to improve productivity, how to build more promising startups and how to turn those promising startups into big businesses in the UK. University spinouts are part of this debate, but there is also concern about whether that system is working, particularly whether founders are getting a fair share of the business once their idea is spun out of the university. As someone who has built a university spin-out and turned a promising startup into a big company in the UK, Gordon Sangera is an ideal person to ask about this. And he has strong views. What's the key to making an idea from a university turn into a successful business? What is what is because you are one of the most successful university spin-outs the UK has ever produced, and there's a lot of people trying to do similar things now, what does it take to make it work? I think there's an overemphasis, and I don't say this lightly, on what wonderful innovation we have. It's good. But what it takes to go from a idea, some patents, an SME with a handful of people, or even 20, 30, 50 people, to build a company that can actually, you know, stand against the global competition out there in a competitive field is a whole different game. And when I set this up with Hagen, I said to him, I will be state and you will be church. You have to let me be in complete control and run this business. There's too many startups who are overly dominated by the the founders and there's too many startups that some founders think are just an extension of their research group 
and and ultimately there is almost a separation from the founder and what the company does there has to be and and so i i think the, the company has to very quickly through finance rounds create its own identity and create products which is very different to a proof of concept obviously it took us seven or eight years and we spent you know multiple hundreds of millions of pounds to turn a fantastic innovation but really a proof of concept into products that can be used today in over 120 countries routinely and simply and bringing that access and democratization of DNA sequencing that is not to be underestimated it is wholly missed by everybody and even in the latest you know we're going to make life sciences a superpower there needs to be more emphasis on medium and long-term and scale-up. It's too much focus on getting SMEs running. You're just moving the, the value proposition one step from universities to SMEs. You need to work out how to create scale-up and ultimately back those companies all the way through. There's a lot of attention on the spin-out world at the moment in terms of founders potentially not having enough equity in the business, but... What you're saying there, that's not actually the right issue to be concerned about. There's no reason why that necessarily has to hold back the new business. Completely. I think the the whole equity argument around, you know, founders and universities is the wrong discussion. We should be starting with the answer. How do we make this technology we have here become a global player? And you've got to find the right sort of management to say this is what it's going to take. I think in academia in particular, I don't think they properly understand, you know, they spin a company out and I don't want to, not everybody's like this in academia, right? But some people and they say, oh, how much do you own? I own X percent. It's an irrelevance. You know, you can own 50% of a company valued at a million, great. Or you can own half a percent of a company valued at 10 billion. The, the, the equity argument is the wrong argument. And and if you find the right management, you know, they will ensure that there is an equitable distribution of equity. Does it need more people like you, frankly? People who've had a who've been in business and then want to go back and help ideas and startups? I think there's plenty of people like me. Yes, it does. In the you know, there are plenty of seasoned people who want to do what I did, which was you know, be in control and learn from what I've, you've learned to take companies on. And, and, I, and I, you know, don't get me wrong. I think the SME and, and the innovation pipeline is really healthy, but not all of them are going to make it, right? There's a big gap to the other side of the desert and very few have been bold enough or stupid enough, as some people say about us, to even attempt it. Scaling up has come up as an issue again and again in this podcast that the UK has just not historically been good at turning promising ideas and startups into medium-sized businesses and then big businesses. You've obviously done it here. And looking back over the last 18 years, what, what are the key tests that you have to go through in order to make that happen? So I, I still think we're a work in progress in terms of scaling up. You know, we're some ways off where we want to get to. To some extent, the pandemic has catalyzed 
nanopore sequencing platforms into public health laboratories. That's been a real terrible, but it's been good for us to be able to raise awareness of low-cost, affordable, accessible DNA sequencing. But even without that, there is a trick that we can we can do, which is very simple. As we, as companies particularly, well, not just particular, I mean, companies that are coming through and they're ready to cross the desert, right? They need they need the right supplies to get to the other side. And UK PLC can step up to the plate, and whether that's in defence or healthcare, and, and they can really help. There is There is a lot of talk about what a great resource the NHS is and what phenomenal data we have. But if nobody's actually going to allow anybody to access it, or generate new data, which is what nanopore sequencing would give us, and create that global leadership, which then can be exported to the rest of the world, it's again just going to hit the same buffers. So I think in answer to your question more specifically, you've got to decide what you want to do when you start the company. Do you want to sell, market, distribute, and become a global company? Or do you just want to get to proof of concept and send it on? Is it an incremental play? Is it truly disruptive? I think it, it, it really is about thinking about what the end game is. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't think that of all the list of things I was going to do, I didn't want to spend the next 20 years of my life doing something that would take this long. But once you start on that journey, it very quickly evolves. And within a year, I realized this could be huge. And I basically went from a mentality of three to five years to I'm now you know longer than Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger in terms of a CEO from startup because that's not what you expect from you know people say oh yeah he was really good for the early bit or she was really good for that we need to move to this to this and I I think you know if you find the right sort of investors and they back you all the way you can make it. Oxford Nanopore floated on the London Stock Exchange in the autumn of 2021. It was priced at around £3.5 billion in the float, but shares in the company surged on the first day of trading amid excitement about its prospects. However, it's been more difficult since then, with shares in the company falling sharply in 2022, meaning Oxford Nanopore's value fell to just half the initial IPO value. Gordon Sangera's desire to keep Oxford Nanopore UK owned means that it has anti-takeover shares that give him the power to veto a hostile takeover bid for the first three years after the float. Being a PLC, you, you, twice a year you're reporting in the UK. I mean, it'd be a real drain quarterly reporting as you have on NASDAQ. But So that gives you a nice cadence in between. You can get your head down. And, and run the business and quite rightly we raise money in October 21 and so we're very well capitalized and we have a path to profitability which we've talked about so we're in a great place now you know to some degree the limited anti-takeover share was about the four horsemen of the apocalypse right what if the share price collapsed for reasons that are way outside our control like Putin invading Ukraine like the Chinese, Taiwan, US tension, the global supply chain challenges. 
I mean, all those things have happened and they're external factors. And, you know, when I talk to employees, I say, you know, you've got to look at it on a bigger picture. We can't control the share price. All we can do right now is continue to make good on our year-on-year growth of greater than 30% in our underlying business. And that's what we're doing. And and at some point, you know, although another bank fell at the weekend, the recession will bottom out and will come out of the other side. And I think, you know, having raised money through the 2008 banking crisis, there is a bit of a correction and the stronger companies that come out the other side of that. You listed in London over in New York, and, and at the time you said it was an opportunity to tackle urban myths about being in London, and, and it was part of proving that you could do it here. But at the last results, you also pointed out that it's not irreversible. So is there a chance that you could move the listing to New York? So when we did the IPO, we did a really thorough analysis of London versus NASDAQ, and it was marginal. And the attraction of reporting twice a year and getting the right valuation when there was a normal market for life sciences. You know, we can definitely, I think, agree there's a depressed market with Silicon Valley Bank collapsing and just generally this sector's struggling at the moment. But the what I would say is nothing is ever off the table. There seems to be this binary thing that if you float in London... You can't go somewhere else in the future. And and all I would say is we will do whatever we need to to grow the company to the next level. And right now, we, you know, we're 15 months into an IPO and there's no appetite to do anything. You know, we want to get our heads down. We're well capitalised and focus on growing the business. You may have noticed that Gordon Sanguera has made a few footballing references through the interview so far. Until recently, he actually used to be the manager of a local Oxford amateur team called Mansfield Road. And he played when he was younger. He says football played a powerful role in his life when he was growing up with his family in Swindon. And that there is a lot that businesses can learn from successful teams and coaches in sport. So MediSense became Abbott. Abbott's a large hierarchical, you know, corporate based in Chicago where we used to go and have to get our money from them. And so when we set Oxananapore up, I wanted to create a very flat structured company. I didn't want silos. And, and we also, you know, really, really wanted people to move out of R&D into tech support, into sales and marketing. So kind of the football analogy is the, the great revolution of the Dutch, Rinus Michel's total football vision where any player can play in any other position. And we've always had that mentality. And it just it just challenges the norm, right? If you're selling a disruptive product, your marketing can be very, very very different to just selling an incremental box. So when you're when you're in disruptive innovation, everything, the way you sell, what you sell, we give the boxes away. The market sells a box for a million dollars. We almost do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. And and for that, I think you can absolutely look at any sports and any great teams 
they do something different. You know, Alf Ramsey got rid of wing backs and, you know, wingers. And there's just, and you can draw on, on these changes and, and parallels. And, you know, people like Brian Clough, I think if you're a leader of a startup and, and disruptive innovation, you have to be, you have to believe. Even in the darkest hour, you just have to keep believing. And that's why I think I quote people like Brian Clough because he never veered from his vision. And he took a, took a very unfashionable second division side and beat, beat everybody, the elite in Europe. And that's why I like that analogy because, you know, for whatever reason, tech companies out of the UK are seen as underdogs, second class. And even by our own country, the tall poppy syndrome, you know, and which is why I'm here today talking to you, because I think we have to stop this. And if we do, and we start to become proud of the companies we create, proud of the vaccines we delivered, then I think it it, it can change everything. So, yeah, I'm totally inspired. I don't football manage anymore. And actually, I've set up a foundation and I fund football teams particularly impoverished, and I was funding women's football, girls' football, long before it became fashionable. I wanted to ask about the foundation because it, 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 there's two things that you seem to have stand out, state school and sport, two things that clearly seem very important to you. Why were those the two things that you wanted to support? So I think the I got five O-levels and a C in chemistry and an E in maths. It was enough to get me into Cardiff University just... So I scraped my way to an education. But once I got there, I kind of realised if you, because the state school I went to, if you were given most of the curriculum, and I did, I worked hard, but the school I was at just wasn't, didn't have that level of teaching anymore. And, and I prospered. And for me, I joined the local football team which probably saved me from falling out into a rough crowd. And so, you know, I'm quite passionate about helping people to find somewhere to go, to have, you know, that ability to not be on the streets. And, and you know, it it was important for me. And, you know, living with my grandparents and my four aunts and my two brothers and my sister in a small three up, three down, getting away from all of that all kind of came through football. Was that the key to, to how you're sitting here today? Because you, you went to state school, you didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, you then did do a PhD, but you didn't work for an investment bank either. So when you look at sort of the founder ecosystem in the UK, that makes you pretty rare. So how did you do it? Oh, I don't know, actually. I think with like having... I managed to get into Oxford as a postdoctoral researcher, but that was really to join Medicines because the academic was there. But what I what I think you realise from, okay, I've got to my first year university, I thought I'd failed miserably, and then arranged marriage back and right. And actually, I got like 65%. So I thought, oh, okay. And then I got to my degree, got a 2-1, and the prof said, why don't you do a PhD? And I thought, Delay arranged marriage for three years. Sounds good to me. Keep playing football. Keep being a student. Won a prize from the Royal Society of Chemistry for my PhD work. You then go to Oxford and you look around and you think, these guys are bright. 
and the super bright ones, you know, I didn't ever think I wanted a career in academia, but it just gives you a level of confidence. And I think it's just, you know, at each level, I, I just got more confident about my abilities. And then Medisense was seven years rising to be head of R&D and then working in the States, selling products to clinicians. I think it's just a process. You know, I, it, I find I haven't forgotten who I was and where I came from. I think about that all the time. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the uniqueness, the difference. You know, I, I, I didn't go to Oxford. I didn't, you know, go to school with quads, and, and I didn't row. And that's why it's football profile. People need to understand I am a very different person to a typical CEO. Just going back to sporting reference, you mentioned before sort of Brian Clough, but also the anti-establishment side of what he was doing. Is that how you see yourself as a CEO and how you like to manage? And is that how the sort of spirit you try to instill into this company? Yeah, and not just me, Clive as well, CTO. If it plays out the way it should, everybody will be doing their DNA sequencing at the desk, you know, at the bench side in real time. The model today is just like Kodak. You make something, you send it to the central lab, which could be a sequencing center in a university, service provider, they sequence it, send it back to you. You can do expedited overnight or it takes a week or two. We will break all of that. So when some investors say, oh, well, we went to see, you know, big institutions like the Broad Institute, Sanger Center and all these large experts we're the antithesis of that. We, we will disrupt that. And, and you know, the Kodak Color one is a perfect example. Instead of making something, sending it to a lab, getting it back, you'll do it in real time. And we're seeing that. And, you know, something that's really interesting, if you were being diagnosed for, say, breast cancer, and you could turn it around same day or next day. Why wait? And so it changes everything. So in that respect, disruptive innovation, having grown up in a time when music was disruptive and the punk revolution changed everything, you didn't need a record deal. You didn't need the radio to plug your thing. I mean, we started in 2005 in May, and in October, Arctic Monkeys, I bet you look good on the dance floors, number one. No record deal. Through MySpace and leaving CDs on the buses, on the top floor of buses in Sheffield, they went straight to number one. And that's what we are out to do. We're disrupting the way that people think they have to do sequencing. During the pandemic, somebody said, no, we need to get India to send samples to the UK so we can sequence them. And... That, that all breaks. If you can just allow India to sequence, it really, there is a huge seismic shift. If you look today at sequencing superpowers and those with atomic weapons, pretty much correlates. There are exciting opportunities ahead for Oxford Nanopore. Gordon Sangera says its role in genomics could be similar to Apple in the IT and computer revolution of the 1970s, 80s and 90s 
and that it's bringing a complex technology to the wider population and providing the tools for others to use it to create unique content. But it's now 18 years since Oxford Nanopore was founded. So has it been slower and harder than Gordon Sangera expected, given the technological advances that Oxford Nanopore says it has made? Yeah, it has. I I think you create, if you like, a colour TV, but it's quite grainy. You've got a great black and white image, you've got colour, and you just sort of think, well, obviously I was watching the snooker last night, right? It's a no-brainer. You're going to shift. But it's that that may be true and is true, I think, for a consumer product. When it's, you know, all the world's leading scientists are using these beautiful black and white images, the transition is a lot harder. And, and all these institutions have poured tens of millions over multiple years into these large infrastructures. So breaking those is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Probably the most surprising thing, even though you, you could watch the snooker now and, and see the colours, and, you know, some pioneers are prepared to do that, early adopters do that, you actually have to give them the black and white image and say, oh, I can do everything you want. Here it is. It's cheaper, faster, quicker, easier. But, oh, look... We go through this door, you get all this other stuff. I've found that surprising and challenging as to why people are like that, but then I'm not the psychologist in the management team. And they tell me that's normal. And I wish I'd known that three years ago because I think we might have tried to do something different. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick, our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will find bonus content as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com. <laughs>